Uh, several of the book studies that we're going to have this year, in fact, all of them really are going to be cultivating that same goal, the growing of our faith, the growing of our trust in God. So to 2 Thessalonians, we turn. And as always, when we start a new book, I hope to give you a little context for it. Reading the letters and the correspondence of the New Testament uh, is a little like, I've said this many times, listening to one side of a telephone conversation. So it can be kind of complicated. It can be kind of confusing if you don't have any history of understanding what these books are about. But it also is really telling. When we listen to this half of the conversation, we can get insight into what was maybe being addressed on the other side of the conversation, why the Apostle Paul was writing to this church. And we find that when we're listening closely, that this must have been a church that was in a place of crisis. If you were with us several years ago, we did a study through 1 Thessalonians, the first letter that was written to this church, and did a little background on the church, discovered that it was a church born out of expediency, that, that Paul had preached and People had responded, and then persecution arose really quickly, so he was forced to leave town. And there was this concern, you know, did that church take root? Are they still faithful? So Paul sent Timothy, his ministry traveling companion, back to Thessalonica, and when he got there, he was surprised to see, happily surprised to see, that they were strong. They were strong in the faith. They were just doing great. So Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, and it was largely this celebratory letter saying, wow, you guys are doing great. Keep on with it. Not so with 2 Thessalonians. Sorry to say, Paul had received word that the church was experiencing increasing persecution. So the same persecution that caused him to leave town, now that was heavily coming against the people of God. And even worse than that, I mean, even worse than the pressures that we can face outside of us as the church is the trouble that we can face from within. There was fracturing within the church community. There was disunity among God's people, and that is always way more serious. Rumors had begun swirling in this early Christian community that Jesus' second coming had already occurred or was imminent. So you guys know Jesus went to the cross. He died. He was buried. He rose to life, ascended to the Father. He's returning again to enact the fullness of his kingdom. And there were rumors going around he'd already come. And some of them had missed it or that it was coming really, really soon, imminent. And, of course, the Bible talks about Jesus' return as coming soon. But they were like, no, he's coming soon, soon. He's coming next week sort of soon. And that was really causing these disruptive sort of things in the church where people are behaving differently and they're getting into disagreements and arguments. And it was demoralizing this once unified body. It was a time not unlike some of what we experienced in the year 2020 when fear and anxiety in the church led to rumors and fracturing within the church of America. So Paul writes to ground this church in the tradition and the teachings that they'd received initially and to give them this gift of eternal encouragement, which is the name of the series, which would come by way of God to fuel them to continue on with the works of God despite the times and the troubles that they were facing. Let's read together. Start this letter. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1 and read the first 10 verses this morning. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. 
All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the glory of the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Let's pause there this morning. Paul and his companions, right? Silas and Timothy start with a typical Christian greeting before getting on with first what is an affirmation for the faithful among the Thessalonian church, and then second, what is going to be an encouragement for those same faithful individuals in the church. He says we should always be thankful in prayer because of the faithful that are sticking it out among you. We should always be thankful. We're obligated to give thanks to God. It's like when you guys receive a gift, anytime you receive a gift, you feel obligated to thank someone on the other side of the gift. You're saying, who's going to pay for lunch? He's going to do it. I'm 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 going to do it. And then someone finally does it, and then you don't go, oh, I'm so angry at you. You go, thank you, and I'll get you next time, right? Like, there's that obligation of thanks on the other side of a gift, and Paul is saying, like, this is the greatest gift we could have ever received from God to know that there are faithful among you who are continuing to do the work of God. And what was the signs, the vital signs that they were healthy, that they were thriving, that they were faithful. Like when you go into the doctor and they check your vitals, I mean, what are they looking for? They're, they're checking out your pulse and your weight and your blood pressure, not to bring up, you know, any negative feelings right now as you consider all those things, but like those are like the indicators, the markers of health. What were the markers of health that Paul was calling forth in these faithful Thess- Thessalonians? Well, he said, number one, their faith in God is increasing more and more. And number two, alongside it, their love for one another was increasing along with that faith. Now, building upon these qualities of vibrancy, I want to suggest that first, given the way that Paul phrases it, when we think about faith, we have to think about it as something that isn't just static. It isn't just stuck and unchanging, an unchangeable reality. It is, it is dynamic, right? In one sense, you have faith or you don't have faith. There are people who believe in God, and there are people who don't believe in God. There are people who trust in the lordship of Jesus and people who reject the lordship and authority of Jesus. So you have faith or you don't. But there's also like this gradient. There's these varying degrees to which someone trusts in that lordship, varying degrees to which someone has more or less confidence in what they assert and believe. Think of it like people who are in love. There are people who are in love, and there are people who are not in love. Okay, you can either have it or you can not have it. But there's a lot of varying degrees of being in love. You know, when people are dating and they're in the throes of a dating relationship, you know, and they've got all the PDA going everywhere in public and it's like very uncomfortable for everybody else and they have no idea, they couldn't care less what anyone thinks, you know. That's a, that's a type of being in love, all right? And then you've got people who've gone through 15 years of marriage, you know. They're veterans of the battle, They've been through some things together. Sometimes they fought each other. Sometimes they fought against, you know, obstacles. But they come to the other side, and they're in love. And that's a different kind of love. And then you've got, like, the 90-year-olds. They're still holding hands. 
you know, and he still calls her beautiful, right? Oh, you guys are melting inside, right? Because we all know that, like, that's a deeper, that's a deeper level of love. And I want that equivalent when it comes to my faith in God, my level of confidence and trust. I want that 90-year-old couple still got it, still thinks she's beautiful kind of thing, if we were to transfer that in the other direction. And the Thessalonians, they weren't messing around. They were proving their faith was deepening. How? Well, there was this increasing pressure that was coming against them, this increasing resistance, and they weren't backing down from it and reducing the amount of trust they had in God. They were meeting the moment. They were being tested, and they were rising to the occasion. You know, does it take more gas to travel a longer distance? 100%. Does it take more strength to lift a heavier object? Yes, 100%. So it takes more faith, it takes more trust and confidence in God to continue to follow him through the hard times. It takes way more faith to go through the hard times than it does to go through the good. In that way, suffering and persecution like this church was experiencing, it's the place. It's the place where you're tested. It's the place where you're shaped. You know, that's where the resistance training is happening, In a time in your life where there is suffering or where there is resistance and persecution, that is the resistance training. It's not enjoyable. Hurts a lot. You don't want to be in that moment, but you get the reward on the other side, which is that increasing amount of maturity or confidence or strength and trust. It's like when a farmer is laboring, you know, suffering and persecution. When we're in that setting, it's like a farmer that's out in the field and they're sowing seed and it's hot and they're digging ditches. And then on the other side, is the harvest of that confidence and that peace and that security and that sense of well-being. You know, when we encounter, and I'm really hammering this home, when we encounter a time in our life of persecution, resistance, or suffering, that is the gift of a moment that you've been given, that you are called to meet, where you are called up into something, where you could have your most expansive growth. You know, the next time you face something difficult, don't think, oh, why, God, did you do this to me? Think, this is the very environment where faith is deepened, and in fact, it is born. For the Thessalonians, they were growing in faith, but so also alongside that, their love was growing, and that's necessary if you understand what it means to trust God. I mean, try walking forward while planting one foot and don't don't move it. Just keep it right there and then just move the other foot and try and walk forward and see how far you get. And I'm not going to keep going. I think I made my point. Like, you can't move forward unless you have both feet moving in tandem. And that's our growth in the Lord. If If you're growing to understand who God is and you're increasing your faith and your trust in Him. Like, as you move in that direction, it, it's necessary for you to also grow in love. That's part of that journey forward. This increases, that increases, right? I mean, truly, it's the more we know God, not about God, the more we know Him, the more we know His character, the more we trust Him through our circumstances, the more we get what it means to live that self-sacrificial life of care and concern for other people in actions and in words. Like, it's impossible to run and not become healthier. I'm learning this, or maybe I'm going to break this concept. Maybe I'll be the one guy that runs regularly and gets more unhealthy. 
But like, it is like a necessary byproduct. Uh, you choose to run. You engage in this exercise and activity, and you have to. Your body will adapt to make you healthier on the other side. If you place your faith in God, he makes you more loving. Unless it's not faith in God that you're growing in. Reflecting on your own life, what has grown in you as you've grown in faith? Along your faith journey, if there was a third person, you know, third party perspective here, looking at your life, seeing your journey of faith, and they said, through your faith journey, as you've grown in faith and practiced your faith, this quality has grown alongside that faith. What would they say? What would you say? You know, as I've grown in faith, I've grown in knowledge. I know more things. As I've grown in faith, I've grown more critical. I'm more cynical. Is that the pairing we're looking for? As I've grown in faith, I've gotten a lot more material blessings, and I'm a lot wealthier than I was before. As I've grown in faith, I've grown in anxiety. Like, that's one of those odd pairings that I've seen exist in some people's lives. It's like the more they get into the Scriptures, the more they get into this faith and this journey with Jesus, the more afraid they get, the more anxious they get. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. These two things do not cooperate well. Like when you have increasing confidence and trust in God, that's supposed to speak to these anxieties and fears. I'm not saying it's a perfect transaction every time and none of us has any worries or concerns, but like literally the longer some people walk with God, that anxiety increases. So the question is, you know, if you have any other quality besides love that you'd place alongside your growing faith, is it really your faith that has been growing. For their part, the faithful among the Thessalonians first get this affirmation from Paul because they were growing in faith and love, even as the times got tough around them. But that's why Paul doesn't just have this affirmation for them. Like I said at the outset, he he writes two things. The first four verses, affirmation for the faithful. You guys are doing it. You're meeting the moment You're trusting in God in a dynamic way that's leading you to be free to love and continue on with the good that God has called you to do. But it's not just an affirmation. He also brings this encouragement, starting in verse 5. And quite frankly, it's an encouragement unlike messages of encouragement that we often hear or receive. It's a message of God's justice and judgment. He starts in verse 5, to the faithful, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, this test and hardship that's come upon you in the world, you're rising to it, and you're being made into a people who are suited for heaven. Like, you are showing yourselves in this world to be the people that God is making you to be. But he's also acknowledging that this life is terribly unfair. Even as they're meeting the moment, there's a moment they got to meet. You know, here they are growing in their trust in God, and here they are growing in their love for one another. And the more that they walk that out, the more resistance they are getting in this world. It's an unfair world. So Paul asserts this encouragement in verse 6, that God isn't just proud of them, but he's just. He's just. God does what is right. And Paul frames God's justice as this sword that swings in two different directions. He does what's right. He's going to give rest for the weary, and he's going to bring trouble on those who trouble God's people. I think we all naturally welcome the first form of justice that I cited, that 
encouragement for those who face unfair treatment. And in fact, that's where a lot of people actually get tripped up. They don't meet in the moment. They, they begin to lose their faith. They lose that trust in God and the circumstances in which the Thessalonians had learned to thrive, right? It's those times when we get into a situation of suffering. We say, God, why? Why would you let this bad thing happen to a good, faith-filled person like me? Those are the moments when we feel abandoned at sea. We feel like we're just like left without an advocate. We go and we pray and we feel like there's like this indifferent audience. There's, there's no response from God. And, and guys, I have been there so many times. You know, when I gave my life to the Lord and I'm stepping into ministry, so I go to Bible school in Kansas and I'm driving hours into the countryside so I can preach in a church with four people and 50% of them are asleep. You gotta believe I left and I got a two-hour car ride home to the dorms and I'm going really? This is what I gave my life for? This is my calling? This is my purpose? Why'd you send me out here? You know, one year when I'm driving home from Bible school and I have that near-death experience in that car accident, and I walked away from it, but I walked away with a, a heavy case of PTSD, you know, and I'm going, how could you let this? I, I thought you would protect me from the circumstances in my life, not lead me down this really dark depression driven by all these emotions I can't even understand or control. And then I finish with those four years in Bible school and I come out to California and I'm near homeless, living on a sailboat in Marina Del Rey, not the nicest picture, a yacht lifestyle in your mind. Like, no, we're talking dingy, dark, and I can't even find a church that'll take me on as an intern. I guess my Kansas, you know, resume was not that appealing for people, or maybe it was me, right, <laughs> in those meetings, but I'm going, why did I come all the way out here? And I didn't feel always that there was a response, and so I just say that to say, I got battle scars. I got battle scars from this journey, and the Thessalonians, they were, they were collecting some battle scars, and I'm sure that you've had some battle scars in life. So to hear what Paul says is more than welcome, Right? That God is just. God will do right by you. The circumstances are difficult. Life is unfair. Horrible things will happen to amazing people. That is what you should expect in this world. You know, we go to God, why would you let this happen? I'm a good per I've been following you. And he goes, I never told you it wouldn't happen to you. I never told you you wouldn't have trouble. You told yourself you wouldn't have trouble. If you go to the Bible, I already told you to change your expectations. You are not in heaven. You are in this world, and you can expect that a lot of gnarly things are going to happen along the way. But I made a promise to you that I am just, that I do right, and I'm going to remake this world for my faithful, and you're going to receive relief and rest from all your losses. That was the message last week. He's coming with a reward and a recompense. God is just. He's going to do right by you. But that justice swings in both directions. Rest for the weary, great. Love it. What a great promise. What a great encouragement. But it's the other direction that causes heartburn for a lot of people today. There's judgment for those who oppose God and his people. How does Paul say it? Let's hear his own delicate words here. Verse 6. God will pay back trouble for those who trouble you. 
Verse 7, when the Lord is revealed in blazing fire with his angels, he will punish all those who do not know God or obey the gospel. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and will be shut out from the presence of God and the glory in which the faithful will revel. It was tongue-in-cheek, right? These are not delicate words. But it's not like they're inconsistent with many other teachings in the Scriptures. It's very consistent. It's very consistent terminology with even the way that Jesus speaks. We just got through a series in the book of Matthew. Many times does Jesus speak about the reality of judgment and hell. So I don't need to stutter. It's a firm conviction established in the Scriptures. God will judge those who resist Him, who do not obey the gospel, and who forsake Him and the pursuit of Him in their lives. Now today, broadly speaking, we live in a culture that is judgment-averse. Unless, of course, you believe in judgment, then so shall you be judged, right? I mean, that's, there's no judgment for anybody except those who hold to this idea that there is judgment, then you can judge those people like crazy. But generally speaking, we are judgment-averse as a society. And many are choosing just to believe there is no hell. And it's sort of like this, you know, everyone gets a trophy, everyone goes to heaven sort of mentality. And a lot of people are maintaining that they are Christian uh, and, and as if that idea lines up with the Bible when it so clearly does not. Personally, if I just level with you guys, if I'm just honest with you guys, person to person, since age 15 to age 35 today, I have never had a problem accepting the reality of God's judgment. I have never had a hard time seeing, and honestly, the longer I've walked and the more I've learned, I I can see more clearly the standards and the design that God has and had for humanity and how far we are away from that standard and that design. And I don't mean you, I mean me. I've never had a problem from age 15 to today like accepting the fact that I've done a lot of wrong things. I've done a lot of bad things. You know, and there's a whole abundance of things the good that God intended to come from my life, that's the standards of the Scriptures, that I also have failed to live into. Like, there are things that exist in my heart and mind that a just God is right to judge. I don't have any problem accepting that. Honestly, I have a hard time understanding what's going on in people that they have a hard time understanding that and accepting that for their own life. But it appears as if there's just this trend and cultural patterning that's going on to numb the conscience of people. That, you know, there's always a reason. There's always a story beneath the sin. There's always a a trauma that we've undergone. There's, you know, something that we didn't get that we wanted, that we lack, so we're operating out of that. And it's always this empathy, this sympathy for sin and for sinners. You know, there's always a reason I wasn't the agent in control of my decisions. I wasn't you know, in control of the car when it off, went off that spiritual embankment, although I'm the only one who possesses the keys to said car, you know? And I don't want to diminish all the contributing factors that go into someone's sin and weakness. 100% your environment and the hard things that you've experienced contribute to that. 100% your biology and the way that it's broken, the things that you inherit through your family line, yeah, that 100% affects you. You know, and I think that that's part of your healing process as it probably, you know, figured greatly into my healing process, that I had to walk through those traumas and I had to walk through, you know, my biology and sit with a Christian counselor and pursue wholeness in Christ. 
But I don't say that to excuse you because we are all willful agents. And that's the point I'm trying to make. We have choice. Not all people who are abused go on to abuse. Not every man who's stressed out harms his wife. James chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Don't blame God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The point is this. God doesn't force you and I to sin. It isn't fatalistic. You and I are driven by an evil inside us that is drawn to an evil outside of us. That weakness could be inherited from your genes. It could be patterned by the experiences that you had in your environment. Whatever the case, you choose to conceive of that sin or not to give birth to it. And when that sin is fully grown, it leads to spiritual death. And I guess I mean to say this as an encouragement when I say you are not exceptional. That's every human being that's ever lived in that same state. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news of God is this, that God is love. And he's not love because he said, you know what? All that stuff, we're just going to be passive about it. I'm going to turn a blind eye. Why don't we just erase, you know, complicity? Let's just erase responsibility. Let's erase right and wrong and let's erase hell and we'll just move on with this whole thing. Everyone goes to heaven. God is real love. God said these wrongs need to be righted. There must be justice in this unfair existence. We're not going to turn a blind eye. I'm going to look right at your wrongs and failures. Someone must become responsible for the evil that exists in this world, and I will become that person. And I will take that upon myself so that you can be truly free. And he did so by sending Jesus to the cross on our behalf. But do you get what I'm trying to say? That there is a real hell that we are really being saved from because our real sin was covered by the real sacrifice of Jesus so that you and I can inherit a real heaven. People look at Christianity and they say, I appreciate it so much. I love the grace and the mercy part. I love the love part. And it's like this beautiful structure, you know, that's built. And of course, we're all drawn to it. Do you understand? It sits on this foundation. It's this foundation of justice, of what's right. And if you took away the structure and you just looked at that slab of concrete, yeah, maybe you're not impressed. Maybe you're not really drawn to it. But that whole structure isn't held up unless you've got justice, unless you have the character, the rightness, the holiness of God upholding that structure, if you want to turn justice into a fantasy, then you're going to turn the whole thing into a fantasy. I mean, you want to take that out of the picture because it'd be easier to live that way. What would happen to society? What would happen to all relationships? We don't even think about that. It's not even rational. You know, the Thessalonians, for their part, were banking on the reality of heaven, won for them by Christ, built on the foundation of God's righteousness and justice. So I want us to consider two things as we reflect on this passage. Number one, judgment is a reality to respond to, not a weapon to be wielded. I've done a lot of talking about judgment because it's here and there's so many misgivings about it today, but the reality is 
you know, how you respond, it is in your hands. I'm not wielding it like a weapon. Christians through the centuries have wielded it like a weapon. They've, they've gotten a little over-anxious with their authority, like, okay, I'm going to parse it out. I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats, and you're going to hell, and you're going to heaven, and you're going to hell, and you're going to heaven, and God hates you, and God supports you. And there can be this air when we talk about heaven that, like, Christians were just born worthy of inheriting heaven while everyone else was born less than. And that's all false. We're all subject to judgment apart from the cross. We're all subject to judgment apart from the cross. Nobody is better than anybody. And everybody has their own decision to make when faced with the reality of their sin and the gospel of God's grace. And some will say, well, you know, I just can't believe in a God that would judge sin. I just can't believe in a God that would bring punishment for wrongs. And let me give you this analogy to sort of think through the situation that you're in. I've told you many times, when I was in the first several years of my marriage with Whitney, five years in, satisfaction level, not very good in our marriage, and the whole time I'm going, man, my wife isn't doing this, my wife isn't doing that. You know, my, the circumstances are causing this. It's all external. It's all these other things, right? And it's driving this wedge between me and my wife. Something she's doing. It's something that's going on in the circumstances. And here's this wedge I got to deal with. And it took me five years of lying to myself before I faced reality and took responsibility and said, oh, I'm the reason there's a wedge in this relationship. I don't need her to conform to my understandings. I need to conform to reality. And some of you, you have this wedge in your relationship with God. You say, God, I can't follow you if you're, if you're just, if you judge sin. And the whole time you're saying, okay, well, I guess I can't believe anything. I got to walk away here. And that wedge in your relationship, it isn't on God to come your direction. It's something that you need to process in your own self-examination. Have you thought it all the way through? Have you understood what the, what the, the foundation is for your understanding even of this world? Like, like, you're the one that needs to conform to his thoughts. You're the wedge that's leading you away from that deeper relationship. Number two, faith acknowledges God will do what only he can do so we can do what we're called to do. That's the final thought I want to leave you with this morning. Faith acknowledges God will do what only He can do, so we can do what we're called to do. And that's a mouthful. But it's true that this isn't actually a passage on judgment per se, because it's written to believers as an encouragement. It wasn't like this is a fire and brimstone message for those who don't know God. It was something to help the Thessalonian church stay encouraged and to stay in their lane. God says, your lane is faith and it's love. And you're doing a great job because you're sticking with it. And my lane is justice. And I can figure out how to bring rest to the weary and trouble to those who trouble you. So that's my lane, and this is your lane. You don't need to enter my lane because I've got it. You're going about trusting in me. You're going about loving one another as you should. All this resistance comes against you. The world is coming at you with sticks and stones. You're tempted to pick up sticks and stones and go hack it out. Bring the vengeance of God. 
Go use judgment as a weapon. He's, no, 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 no. That's my lane, and I got it handled. I will do right by you, and I will do right by those who oppose you. Your right is to stay here, trusting me and following my example of love. We were just talking with the firefighters at the station, which is down the street, right across from our office building through Serve City. We'll do appreciation lunches with city officials and, you know, the, the, the public workers. And I was talking to a firefighter about the last couple of years and just, you know, the difficulties of COVID. And he told me this story about one of his relatives at a barbecue beelining for him. And this is, you know, the Christian in the family, right? The, the real faith-filled Christian beelines for him and says, just admit it. It's all fake. All the bodies, all the stats, it's all fake. That's this guy's impression of Christianity, right? Of the faith-filled. The firefighter, whose wife, by the way, is a nurse. So both of them are absolutely fried from the circumstances that they're experiencing. And then here's this guy, the armchair virologist, right? Who's sitting in his lazy boy, doesn't have a clue what it is but has put all his chips in the basket of saying, this is the message I'm going to send on behalf of Jesus. Everything is fake. You admit it. That guy was out of his lane. Out of his lane. I'm not saying there's not questions. I'm not saying there's not things to process, right, out of the whole thing. There's varying degrees of you feel this way. But I'm saying he's out of his lane. And he so clearly had this opportunity to trust God and to love that environment, the firefighters burned out. The healthcare workers are burned out. Like, I know we don't like looking at 2020, but it's like when you get answers wrong on a test and you say, oh, I'm not going to learn the right answers. I'm not going to go back and check my work because I don't want to know what I did wrong. Like, we got to go back and look at that low-hanging fruit. It was our time. That was our moment. And we could have met that moment with love, so many people to love, people dying and dying in isolation, people burned out, teachers being told, all that you're doing, you need to do so much more. The anxiety, the alcoholism, the marriage is falling apart. Like, we got our lane. Like, we're here to restore and reconcile and redeem. And we got out of our lane. So the call is, man, Faith and trust in God, it's not this wish upon a star like, okay, I don't care about anything that happens in the world, but it is this, God, I believe you're powerful enough to handle the things that I don't know and cannot handle so that I can lay hold of the things that you have so clearly called me to do. Let's enter into that in prayer. Let's ask for that leading this morning. Would you take a posture of prayer with me and... I want to invite you to do something very simple as we enter into prayer, to just have your hands open, your hands open, just like when we'd finish a service and I'd say, you know, open your hands to receive a blessing. This is an, this is an offering and a receiving posture this morning because I'm going to pray that the Lord would reveal to us the things that are in our hands that we're supposed to give back to Him, things that we've laid hold of and, and held tightly to that are not ours to own, that aren't in our lane whether it's vengeance or justice or, you know, somebody else's actions, not our own, or something that's happening in this world that's above us. You know, what are those things that are dominating our thoughts and our hearts and our minds that are not ours to carry? 
And then what are the things that God is placing in our hands to respond to? To act upon? What's ours? His lane and our lane. So Lord, I'm asking, Heavenly Father, I'm asking this morning, the Thessalonian church, what a testimony. There were those who, they knew what you had called them to do. You had called them to place their confidence and trust in you about the things they couldn't control and to lay hold of the love that they knew to be the core of the gospel, the center of Jesus' ministry, and to make themselves fully about that. And they were able to release the resistance and the persecution and the suffering to you, knowing that you would do right by them, that you would be just. So Lord, help us. There are things in our hands that we're tempted to cling on to that are not ours to own, but you've given us something else in our hands to respond to that you're calling us into. For some this morning, they've been wrestling with your justice, your judgments. They've been going, but how can you punish sin? And how is it that you can hold these standards against me? And or that's not theirs to own. You are infinite and unsearchable in your judgments. You know better than we do. It's for us to respond to this invitation of grace. I pray this morning that those who've driven that wedge in their relationship with you, that they wouldn't keep pointing at you, that you're the reason. Or that they do an inventory for themselves. They discover, maybe I've been holding something that's keeping me from you, God. And they place their faith in you. They'd receive grace, the forgiveness, the real grace. Or maybe it's a relationship someone's trying to control. An outcome someone's trying to control in a relationship. Rather than just what you've asked them to do. Lord, help us to sort that out. Maybe there's things going on in our world that we keep trying to be the expert in, that we don't have the resources, we don't have the, we don't have the platform, we don't have the influence. We just need to release that to you. What are we missing that's in front of us that you've called us into? Lord, would you just speak to my brothers and sisters this morning? What are they called to give to you? What are they called to receive as they're calling from you? Let's take a few moments. Ask the Lord to reveal that to you this morning.